thank you for praying with me this morning. Well, this spring, in our messages, we are focusing on the story of the life of Christ. Truly, it is a story that has changed the lives of multitudes of millions of people down through the annals of time, and it is still changing lives today. The story of Jesus Christ can, can change your life as you seek him and as you uh, learn his story. Now, last Sunday, we talked about Jesus and the people he knew. Today, we're going to look at Jesus and the lessons he taught. And as we think about all of the teachings of Jesus, and, and as was so beautifully read today, uh, no doubt uh, the most famous ethical teaching of Jesus, without a doubt, is the golden rule. It's found in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, where it says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up all of the law and the prophets. Jesus' words is saying that, that really all of the Old Testament law, all of the Ten Commandments, everything that God expected and required in the Old Testament, it really can be summarized into this one great golden rule. Treat others as you would have them to treat you. This is the great ethical standard. And, and he says, do this in everything. So you think about that in your own life, in your family life, in your relationships, in your business dealings, in your disagreements, in times of stress, in, all of, in everything in life, treat others, always be careful to treat others as you would want them to treat you. This is the, really the great ethic of Jesus Christ and, and certainly, arguably, his greatest ethical teaching. As we think of the greatest spiritual teaching of Jesus, now this is a little bit different because this is the, the spiritual truth that he wanted us to know. The greatest spiritual teaching is really about himself that he is the Son of God, the Savior, and the only way to God the Father and to eternal life. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said these words about himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's a very exclusive statement, but certainly this is the greatest teaching, the greatest spiritual teaching that Jesus is the Savior, he is the way to God. When we think about the, the ethical teachings, and we think about the, the spiritual truth that Jesus is the Savior, and, and, and really, these are, uh, we have to keep these in the right order as we understand the gospel, because someone might think, well, if I really keep the golden rule, and I try to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, that's going to gain for me eternal life. I will enter into heaven because I've tried to keep the golden rule. And that's not how it works at all. That's not how the gospel works, is it? No, it starts with the spiritual teaching of Jesus that he is the Savior and that we trust in him, we receive him into our life, and, and now, because we are a follower of Jesus Christ, we strive to live according to his teachings. And so really, it is faith in Jesus Christ is the root of our salvation, the ethical outworkings of the obedience of our life, that is the fruit of our salvation. 
So it's important to keep that distinction, right? Now, uh, Jesus had many valuable truths that he taught. There's no way that we could even begin to condense them into one message or one sermon. Speaking of which, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is considered to be the greatest sermon of all time, and it it captures many of the teachings of Jesus. It's quite long. It, it goes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So if you read 5, 6, and 7, you're, you're going to read the Sermon on the Mount that contains, for example, the Beatitudes. It contains the Lord's Prayer. And it contains how to win over worry. It actually is where we find the golden rule. That was a point in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so, really, there are many teachings, and this morning, uh, of course, we're going to have to focus in on one. So, I I had to choose one teaching that we could kind of uh, drill down into, and that, this morning, is going to be the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Now, you may already have some idea about what the kingdom of God is, but I, I think we need to broaden and deepen our understanding because it is very important, the kingdom of God. Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. And this is very important because um, what the word of God says that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. Now, I, I think everyone here, you want peace and joy, and whether you realize it or not, you want righteousness. So this is of interest to each and every one of us. So we're going to look at a text. We're going to look at what alone brings ultimate peace and joy and righteousness. We're going to look at that together. And to do that, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and if, and if, you would, if it's easier for you, you can just use the Black Pew Bible that's there in the book rack in front of you. And in that Bible, all you have to do is turn to page 1,151. Page 1151 is going to bring you to Mark chapter 1, where we see one of the first mentions by Jesus of this teaching on the kingdom of God. Now, there are, there are four gospel books. Let me just mention this as you turn. There are four gospel books or four accounts of the gospel. There is the gospel according to Matthew, uh, according to Mark, according to Luke, and according to John. And they tell, they each one tell the story of Jesus Christ that we're preaching about in these days. And, and they each one, there's four different ones, and they each tell the story from their own perspective. And so you get this full, complete uh, picture by reading the four different accounts. And, and each one is a unique perspective. Matthew wrote to the Jewish people. Uh, Luke wrote to the Gentiles. Mark wrote to the Romans. Um, Luke wrote to the Greeks, I'm sorry. Luke wrote to the Greeks. Mark wrote to the Romans. And John wrote to the entire world. And, and so um, because um, Mark wrote to the Romans, and the Romans were, were people of action, you know, they, they, they built the Roman way, the, the roads, and they, they conquered the, the empires, the, the, the known world at that time. They were people of action. And, and so Mark, Mark's gospel is very short, and it's very quick-paced. 
he, he, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, he says, immediately Jesus went here, and immediately the apostles did this, and immediately, immediately, and it's very fast-paced, and it's very short. So that would, that would keep the attentions of the Romans, and they would find it, find it um, interesting for them to read. And, and we see here, for example, in Mark chapter 1, this is right away. There is no birth narrative in the Gospel of Mark. Have you ever noticed that? That's because Mark presents Jesus as the servant of God or the slave of God. Now, this would have been very familiar to the Romans, who there were millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. Jesus is presented as the servant of God, and really the birth of a slave was an inconsequential matter. It wasn't of significance. And, and the Romans would have understood that, that Mark gets right to the action. I mean, in chapter 1, in your verse 14, and Jesus is already preaching and ministering and serving as the servant of God. We see that here in this passage. Let's look and read in the gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Just two verses today that we're going to use as our text, and we'll reference some others. I'll read aloud, and you follow along with me. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. There it is. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, this kingdom of God was a major theme. It, it starts right in the very beginning and all through Mark and the other gospels, it's repeated a time and time again, uh, the kingdom of God, Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven, which is really synonymous with the kingdom of God. And do you know why Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven instead of calling it the kingdom of God? Because remember, Matthew was written to the Jewish people. And the Jewish people had a thing where they did not like to say the name God. Because they, out of reverence, and out of respect for God, and also out of respect for the commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, because of that command, because of their reverence for God, they, they were reluctant to even say the name of God out of concern that they might be saying it flippantly, or they might be saying it with a, with a wrong heart, and they might be violating the command uh, to not take God's name in vain and offending God. So they, wouldn't, they didn't even want to say the name of God. So Matthew, when he wrote his gospel, he called it the kingdom of heaven. You know, and I can only pause to say this. I wish that just like the Jewish people back in that day and still today, I wish that many of us as Christian people would have such reverence and regard for the name of God that we do not, did not use his name in vain as a swear word or as a byword that we refrain from doing that. That's a different message for a different day. Eighty times Jesus mentioned the kingdom of God. And if you take just the word kingdom, 162 times. I'm talking about just in the Gospels. This is a major theme. And the kingdom of God um, is, is something that we need to learn about. Now, it can be, for us as Americans, 21st century Americans, it can be a little bit difficult for us to, 
to really grasp the concept of the kingdom of God because we don't live in a time of kings or kingdoms. But for the first century uh, Jewish people, the king was the ultimate authority. And, and the monarchs and kings were common. I mean, um, in Jesus' day, right, the, the Romans, Caesar, was the emperor over the known world. But they allowed, the Caesars would allow kings to reign over provinces or over countries. And so they would, there were many kings that ruled regionally, and they, they were to report to the emperor. But I'm saying that this idea of a kingdom was a common concept for those people. And for the Jewish people, the king was the ultimate authority. He ruled completely and sovereignly over his kingdom, over his territory. And he was responsible for everything that happened within those boundaries. He was responsible for the safety and protection of his people. And conversely, his people were his subjects. So they were loyal to him. And he could ask anything of them, and they had to do it. If not, they were found in rebellion to the king. Literally, all of the property of the kingdom ultimately belonged to the king. Everything within the bounds belonged to the king. So Jesus, in his teaching, looked for an analogy. He looked for a way to illustrate or talk about who God is and, and what authority God exercises over us. And what did he do? He chose the highest human authority known to them, which was a king. So the question we're answering this morning is, what does the kingdom of God mean? And we're going to see three meanings for the kingdom of God. First, it is that God is king over the universe. But then secondly, it's that Jesus, when he came the first time, he established an invisible and a spiritual kingdom and then lastly, we're going to see that Jesus, when he does come back the second time, then he is actually going to establish a physical, political, earthly kingdom, a kingdom over this earth. So we're going to look at these, and, and, and it's helpful to manage all three in your mind. So that's really kind of my goal for the message today. So that when you are reading the Gospels and you, you read like, in uh, Matthew 13, there are like seven or eight parables of the kingdom. That whole chapter is called the parables of the kingdom. And so when you read the teachings and the parables of Jesus, you can identify which one of these three meanings Jesus is referring to, and that'll make the parable much easier to understand and to gain the, the teaching of that parable. So the first meaning of the kingdom of God is that God is king over all of the universe. He is king over all. He is the sovereign ruler over the earth and over all of human history. Indeed, he is the sovereign ruler over the universe itself. And this is a present reality. This is true right now, and it has been ever since uh, the, day, the beginning of creation. And we see, uh, I think, probably the clearest, easiest, plainest verse is in Psalm 103. And I'll just quote it for you. It, Psalm 103 is really just one of the most amazing 
Psalms, and it just, it, it just covers so much, and it's all-encompassing. In verse 19, Psalm 9, uh, 103.19 says this, The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. That's it. He has a throne. He is a king. And, and what is the boundary of his kingdom? How far do the, the borders go of the kingdom of God? My friend, it is over all. Over all of what? Over all of everything. <laughs> over all of everything, the entire universe. Now, this is basic theology 101. The great triune God created everything that you see and know. The earth, the moon, the trillions of stars, the billions of galaxies, all of the earth, the mountains and the prairies and, and all of the amazing animal life, the majestic trees, the beautiful spring flowers, the oceans, the rivers, the lakes. He created it all and even uh, he sustains it all moment by moment. He continues to sustain it all. He is king of everything. God's kingdom is all around you, and he reigns. He is king over your life. You are accountable to him as king. Now, you can either choose to recognize the truthfulness of that and live accordingly, or you can choose to live in rebellion. But the fact of the matter is, is that God reigns. You know, uh, we, we sometimes we, we lose sight of this. Or we, in, the, in the mundane of life, in the, the trudgery of life, in the, the details and the busyness of life, we, we lose focus of the magnitude of God and his reign over, over us and over everything. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were on spring break, and we went down to one of our favorite places down in the, on the Gulf Coast, and, and, and really where the part we go to up in the northern panhandle of Florida, it's, it's actually a little chilly this time of the year. The only people that were actually swimming in the water were the people from Maine. They, they get in the water. <laughs> they think it's warm. They don't know any better. <laughs> uh, but the rest of us, we all had sweatshirts on and hoodies, you know, because it was chilly, but you still want to go there. You still, the, that's the first place that my wife and daughter want to go is they want to go to the beach and you stand there in the edge of the shore as the little the waves are are lapping in, and you just you stand in awe at the vastness and the grandeur of that wide Gulf of Mexico, that ocean, and and, and it's just huge. I mean, inside that ocean are whales and there are sharks, and they seem so insignificant and tiny because it is just massive. Even the ships look like tiny dots on the horizon. They are nothing compared to the vastness of all of that. And as you just stand in awe and take in all of the majesty of it, and then, you know what, you, you feel the cold water lapping on your ankles, and you look down, and every time a wave goes out, there's a whole other world that is discovered at your feet. And there are tiny little seashells that are alive, and they, the, the wave you know, uh, washes the sand off of them and they're discovered and then they just start, they immediately start burrowing down into the sand again and there's little sand fleas and little sand crabs and all these tiny little creatures, right? And that's why no one likes to go in the water because there's big whales and big sharks and there's tiny little creatures, right? And it's like, yeah, I'll swim in the pool at the hotel and I'll just enjoy the view out here, right? 
But as you look, in those tiny little creatures will probably never travel more than five feet from where they are right now. And they're, they're busy, and they're running around, and they're scurrying to get away, and they have no concept. They, they can't even comprehend. If they were conscious beings, there, was no, there would be no way for them to understand the vastness and, the, and the, the grandeur of the great wide ocean. My friend, many times we're the same way. I say to you, look up. Look up and see the greatness of God, that he is king over this universe and he is king over your life. Acknowledge. Because whether, whether we acknowledge it or not, let me just tell you, there is a good and benevolent king that rules over everything, and he rules over you. And this is the first sense, the first meaning of the kingdom of God. And it is a cause for humility. It is a cause for joy and peace because you just stand in awe. And, 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 as, and, and the, you know, we all get busy. We all get our heads down as we're running around. But the difference is the person who lives in light of the kingship of God in, even in the mundane and even in the busyness, and you, you still have a sense that you are a part of something so much greater than yourself and that everything you do in life is so much fuller of meaning. And so when you're up to your elbows in dirty diapers and sippy cups and you're, or you're struggling with student loans or you're trying to figure out how to pay a mortgage, or you're fighting cancer. In all of those moments, my friends, be reassured and find comfort and peace and joy even in those moments because there is a God that loves you. and He's ruling over your life. And when no one else, you're just in a corner somewhere, the circumstances of life have placed you in such a way that maybe other, not many other people really know what you're scurrying to and from. Be assured that God does. And he is over you. A benevolent, good king. But see, there's a second meaning to the phrase, the kingdom of God. The second meaning is that when Jesus came, he established a kingdom, but it's an invisible spiritual kingdom in the hearts of those who believe and follow him. So he came to establish a kingdom. This is more to our text. Uh, and so we see in our text that Jesus preached the good news. That's what the word gospel means. He preached the good news of the kingdom of God and that the kingdom was finally near them. So he was obviously talking about a different meaning to kingdom because he said this is new. This is news. It's good news, but it's new, and it's finally near them. So this could not have been the other kingdom sense that I was talking about because that's always near us all of the time. He was talking about something that was coming near them now, and it was new. It was good news, and it was very nearby. Do you know why I said it was very nearby? You know why I said that to them? Because he was that king, and he was standing right in front of them. 
and they couldn't see it. Christ, this far, I mean, sh- I mean, I don't know if they had social distancing. I think he was closer than six feet, right? I mean, you know, a lot of cultures, you know, the idea of personal space is very different, right? And uh, most people in American culture, you know, they want like a good arm's length because otherwise you're starting to, you're just starting to feel, in a lot of countries, it's not that way, my friend. (laughs) A lot of countries are small and they're very heavily populated and personal space is like, you know, you're like, whoa, okay, let's uh, back this up a little bit. Jesus was right in front of them. He said, the kingdom is near you. He said, it's in your midst. Well, wh- where's the army? Where's the throne? Where, where's the trumpets? I don't see a kingdom. I know you don't. It's invisible. <laughs> Jesus is king of the heart of the individual that commits his life to him. And when we, and, um, and then he goes on, he says, well, how do we enter this kingdom? Right? That's a good question that everybody, I mean, if you're listening to me and you, you like anything that I've said so far, a natural question would be, okay, where do I sign up? How do I become a part of this kingdom? Well, he tells us in the very next verse, this scene, when he says, by repenting and believing the gospel and making Christ your king and your highest authority. That's what he says. So the gospel of the kingdom is the same as the gospel of Jesus Christ, really, if you want to get down to it. And when we receive it, we become citizens of heaven. When we believe the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and that he rose again and that he is God the Son and that he is alive today and that he is the Savior and the only way that we can be absolved of our sins is through faith in him when we accept him into our life we become citizens of the kingdom of god and so he is our king we owe our allegiance to him we are no longer of this world and really when you get right down to it the second meaning of the kingdom of god is the rulership or the lordship of jesus christ in the hearts of those who have Christ as King and Savior of their life. And so they follow the codes of the kingdom, the the habits, the values, the lifestyle of the kingdom. That's what they follow. They seek to align their lives as good subjects of the kingdom of God. They seek to align their lives with the ethics of their king. That's what they do. So this naturally is going to impact the way they live their lives. And, and, and this is where um, um, the kingdom of God becomes visible. The invisible becomes visible in the testimony of men and women and young people and children who are following the ethics of their king. It, they, they are like salt and light. They are like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. So the invisible becomes visible as it is worked out in the the behaviors, in the words and attitudes, and in the ethics of the citizens of the kingdom. And this really, my friend, this comes down to lordship 
and surrendering your will to the will of your king. I, wa- I want to share an, uh, an illustration with you, and maybe you've heard this recently, but if you haven't, I want to share it now. One night, a person dreamed a dream. And in their dream, they were standing in the cemetery of a large cathedral. And they were surrounded by graves. And there were inundations in the, where the graves were. And um, all of a sudden, the graves started to open in this dream. And so the grave opened. This was the graveyard of great heroes of the past. And, and a grave opened, and, and, and an armed king stood up. And then another grave opened, and another armed king stood up. And this began to happen all around him in his dream. And these were formidable formidable figures. These were warriors, great warrior kings. And and they were great heroes of the past. And and a number of them appeared on the scene. And as they looked around and saw each other, because they were warrior types, they began to fight. And they began to do battle there. And... And immediately started to fight. So then the question becomes, what causes the great kings of the past not to fight? Because in that cemetery, beside that cathedral, was a large statue of Christ. And as they began to see it, as they began to see it, one by one, as they saw that figure of Christ, one by one, they began to drop their sword and to bow down. And, and, and the, what causes the great kings of the past to stop their fighting? It is only when they bow to a greater king that their fighting stops. And they can even begin to enjoy peace and joy. But my friends, it is not just the kings of the past. It is every king in this room. Because every single one of us, we, are, we have a throne of our heart, and we, are, we seek to reign from the throne. We are a little king in our own little world, and, and, and we kind of like that. And, but what can cause uh, a king, a formidable king warrior, to sheath his sword and live in peace and harmony with those around him? My friend, it is only a greater king that we bow to and we yield our life to. And that's what the invisible kingdom of God in our hearts causes us as Christians, as followers of Christ, to do. Now let's move on because there's a third meaning to the kingdom of God. And that is that one day Jesus will come again. And the second time, uh, you know, the second time he will come uh, not as a suffering servant. He will come not as one where you're a king. Oh, you don't look like a king to me. He's nearby, but they don't even recognize him when he came the first time. Oh, my friend, 
When he comes the second time, he will come to establish a physical, political reign on this earth. And he will come riding a white stallion. He will come with all of the armies of heaven. He will come to conquer evil, to put down injustice. He will come to establish peace on this earth. And he will rule and reign from a throne in Jerusalem, I'm telling you. Now, I'm not a prophet. I'm not prophet Isaiah. I'm not prophet Jeremiah, although sometimes I cry like him. I'm not prophet Ezekiel, and I'm certainly not prophet Jonah. But I'm going to prophesy. Okay, well, Pastor Phil, I'm about to walk out if you prophesy in this church. <laughs> I'm going I'm to, I'm playing it really safe, okay? I'm going to make a prophecy that every Bible-believing Christian in this room could make the very same prophecy, and you wouldn't be wrong. Based upon what I believe about the Word of God, I am prophesying. That's not a, I'm, I'm telling you what the prophet said, right? Okay, let's just be clear here. <laughs> One day, the Lord Jesus Christ will sit on a throne in Jerusalem. And, one, and from that throne, he will put down all of the enemies of God. And, and, and on that day, every knee, every knee, every king, every tyrant, every dictator, every murderer, every rapist, every knee, every infidel, every atheist, every knee will bow before the throne of God, Jesus Christ, and they will, with their tongue, they will confess that he is Lord. My friend, that day will come. As I think about that, every, every promise that, Jesus, that God made to Israel, all of the promises of Zechariah, and they were so beautiful, all of the promises in Isaiah, all of the promises of a land and blessing and peace and prosperity, every single one of those promises will be fulfilled in a literal land called Israel. And you know what he says? He says that you and I will reign as kings with him. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. That gives me peace, and that gives me joy today. And, and you know, and sometimes, you know, I, I've already referred to the, keep, our heads are down, and life just seems kind of gloomy and kind of like stressful and just kind of like, you know, I don't know how much, and all of those things. Can I just say, we're not home yet. We are not home yet. And the things that we go through in this life and the things that we endure and the things that we kind of try to figure out and we kind of muddle our way through and, and there's frustration of not having the answers that we need. And all and I think the song said it well, cope, right? The things that we have to cope with. My friend, we are not home yet. And the kingdom of God is a reassurance and it is an encouragement and it is hope to every single follower of Jesus Christ. He is king today in my heart and I strive to live according to his teachings. But my friend, one day he will be king here and we will be with him and it will all be peace forevermore. That, my friends, is a cause for joy and encouragement and hope to each one of our hearts. Let's bow together for prayer.